Uh, it's been fun. As Pastor Andrew said, I'm going to be talking uh, from a letter that was written by Peter. Uh, I like Peter. Uh, and this, um, uh, getting the opportunity to look at Peter in this way was really fun because I, I've generally looked at Peter's actions uh, as, we, as they are in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. But getting to think about his words and wrestle with his words was a really fun exercise for me. I like Peter a lot. He is genuine, genuinely a willing character in Scripture. Peter is one of the first people to follow Jesus. He is one of the first people to step into the water. He is one of the first people to cut that guy's ear off that was coming after Jesus. Uh, after the Pentecost uh, that we saw today in the video, he was the first person to speak about what was happening. Peter is a willing uh, participant in what God is doing. But Peter also doesn't always get it right. Um, and I'm encouraged by that. Like when he cut off the ear of that guy, Jesus didn't want him to do that. Um, because then Jesus, you know, super glued it like back on. So, so Peter doesn't always get it right, but he is willing. He is a willing um, uh, member of this Jesus community, but he doesn't always get it right. And that encourages me. Because all we have to be is willing, and God has a tendency to take care of the rest. So we're going to be looking at some words that Peter wrote to some churches in what is present-day Turkey, northern Turkey. Uh, so Peter addresses these communities of faith at the very beginning of this letter. He addresses them in 1 Peter chapter 1 as exiles, and then later in chapter 1 he addresses them as foreigners. Now, you may now, he may have been referring to them as actual exiles or foreigners. There was a scattering of the church that took place in Acts chapter 8. He may have been referring to them as literal exiles and foreigners. He may have been referring to them as metaphorical exiles uh, or foreigners. But what Peter, in, in either case, what Peter is trying to communicate to his audience is that they are currently or will be in the future experiencing some sense of otherness. They will experience some sense of dislocation. And that experience of otherness, that experience of dislocation should be congruent in line with their Christian experience. As Christians, we are exiles and we are foreigners in relation to the society around us. And judging by the makeup of this room, most of us probably have some experience with foreignerness. Uh, we can reflect on our various immigration stories. We all have immigration stories, unless you are native to this land, which is the Ohlone people. Unless you're a Ohlone person, you all have an immigration story. We all have that. Some of us, that may be more recent. Some of that may have been farther along in our story. So as we look at the scripture tonight, uh, actually this morning, sorry, I usually speak to college students. They're usually not awake at this time. So if there's a college student here, like hug them because they're awake and they're in church. But this morning, as we look at this scripture, I would love for you to think about an experience that you had as a foreigner. Uh, maybe it was in this country, maybe it was in another country. If that doesn't resonate with you, think about a time where you felt very out of place and you were just very, very different than the people around you. So you can have that in, your, in the back of your head as we look at the scripture tonight, I think, this morning. I think that will help us 
understand what Peter is trying to communicate. As members of the church whom Peter addresses as exiles and foreigners, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us in how we relate to one another within the church? And what does that mean for us as exiles and foreigners, how we relate to the environment around us? Those are the two questions that I want to offer some insight around this morning. Uh, I'm going to talk about the first one first, and I'm going to read some of the scripture, and then I'll talk about the second one, and I'll read the rest of the scripture. So let's turn uh, to the word of God uh, that Peter gave us. <clears throat> Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and the ears are attentive to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let me pray for us really quickly. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity to gather around your word. May you bless the reading of your word and the hearing of your word. May you bless the teaching and the hearing of your word this morning. We ask this in the name of your son. Amen. <clears throat> These words, they give us an indication of how Peter wanted this community of faith to interact with one another. And, as I will get to in a moment, how they were supposed to interact with the broader environment. But in order to fully understand what Peter is saying, we need to understand the context within which the early Christian communities were perceived by those who were not, who were not a part of them. How were early Christian communities perceived from the outside? Remember, Peter addressed this community as exiles and foreigners. So he was communicating that there should be some sense of otherness, there should be some sense of dislocation, and that is appropriate and right. Early Christian communities back in the day were viewed with an eye of suspicion. They were viewed with an eye of suspicion because they did things that were not normal, that were not according um, to the norms of their society. They were breaking the rules. Within a, the forming church, there was a new kinship group that was forming around the person of Jesus. And kinship groups were really important back in the day. It was who you belonged to and who belonged to you, who took care of you and who took care of you. There was no social safety net back in the day. All you had were these various kinship groups. And these kinship groups were fairly rigid. But in this new community that was forming around the person of Jesus, it cut across various lines of kinship groups. It cut across cultural lines. The early church was a fairly diverse group of people. It was made up of Jews who had come to believe that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. It was made up of non-Jews, Gentiles. Uh, in fact, because of where, this, um, where these uh, uh, churches were at, it's probably mostly made up of, of Gentile people, um, just thinking about geographics. Um, so it's a culturally diverse uh, group of people. Uh, it also cut across what we would call today uh, socioeconomic lines. 
there were people with resources within this community. Uh, generally, those people with resources were wealthy women. Uh, we have an example of that in the book of Acts, uh, Lydia. She was a merchant of fine purple fabric. It was actually more rare for a rich man to be a part of one of these communities back in the day because of the costliness of associating with uh, a group of Christian people, and I will get to that in a moment. So there's some primarily rich women with resources in these communities. There's also poor people that were a part of these communities. There were free peoples, and there were slave peoples that were a part of these communities. <clears throat> so the kinship groups that were very important uh, and in the church, it, there was a new kinship group that was forming, and it was full of different people, and they were interacting together, and they were interacting together in a way that was not, that was not transactional, and it was not prescribed based on power as it existed in their society. Let me talk about that real quick. Let me talk about transi transactions and power. Back in the day, uh, Rome was the influence over much of um, the places that we see in the Bible. And Rome, Roman society, was built around this idea of patronage. Who was your patron? Who paid for your stuff? If you were a slave, who owned you? If you were a mason, you're doing brickwork, who funded that building project? If you were privileged enough to get an education, who was paying for that education? Whoever that was, was your patron. And in response to that patron, you owed them your allegiance. To use a dated reference, um, think about the Godfather movies, uh, or any gangster movie, actually. <clears throat> uh, you didn't want to owe the Godfather or any of those gangsters any favors. Because if you owed that Godfather or that gangster that favor, you, you were indebted to that person, and that favor was going to have to be paid for. And when we think about those movies, uh, particularly like The Godfather, where did that originally, all, the, all that start? Started in Italy, Rome. Uh, mafias and organized crime, they were just um, emulating Roman culture from centuries past. Whoever was your patron, they also had a patron. And that patron had a patron. So on and so forth, until at the very top was Caesar. Caesar stood at the top of, um, uh, of a pyramid of patronage. And below him was an interconnected web of favors and pledged allegiances that held society together. And those were all transactional, and those were all determined by the various places that people had in society. So that is how society worked back then. That's how society was kept together. This idea of patronage and who your patron was and whom you owed allegiance to. But all of a sudden, in the church, all these different people were interacting with one another and an idea of a static, fixed, defined kinship group was coming into question. The relationships that these people had with one another were different. They did not revolve around transactions. Do this for me, I'll do this for you. That was not the community that made up the church. 
their relationships revolved around the person of Jesus. And Jesus instructed his followers not to be patrons to one another, but to be servants to one another. That was different. That was different than how society around them did that. And as a result of that differentness, Peter addresses these people as exiles and foreigners because they were going to experience that difference. They were going to experience that otherness, that sense of dislocation. And it's within this context that Peter here gives his audience his five relational instructions. Be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate, and be humble. Everyone, everyone in this diverse community, no matter who they are, no matter what their place was in society outside of the church, are to demonstrate these five qualities to one another. In the church, back in the day, social status was relativized. In fact, prior to this passage, there is a passage addressing uh, women and wives, instructing them not to braid their hair or wear jewelry. And the reason for that was because braiding of hair and wearing a jewelry was a symbol of status and wealth and power. It is sort of like another movie reference. Um, it is sort of like the movie um, The Hunger Games. You guys know The Hunger Games? Um, and you know that um, the district where they have all the power and the resources and all that, and they had those, those crazy like hairstyles and like all those like crazy clothes that they wore? Those were demonstrations and symbols of their power and their resources. But in the church, those things were not supposed to matter. Those things uh, were not supposed to carry with them uh, the same symbolism. In the church, everyone was to treat one another with sympathy, love, compassion, and humility. Everyone, regardless of status. Now, I don't know about you, <clears throat> But if I walked into a room and, um, or some kind of gathering and I found out that um, like-mindedness, sympathy, compassion, humility, love governed how that community related to one another, I'd be pretty inclined to stick around. You know, I'd want to be a part of that community. So they're supposed to have that posture towards one another. And they are to not repay evil with evil, but instead with blessing. They are to keep their tongue from evil speech, but instead they are to do good and seek peace. Now, all of these are different ways of relating to one another. But these are non-transactional ways of relating to one another. This isn't a scratch my back, I'll scratch your back instructions. Or conversely, if you think about the other way, if you do me wrong, I'm going to do you wrong too. Peter is telling them, a different way of how to relate to one another. And as anything that is different, it is viewed, it was viewed, with an eye of suspicion. Peter, in the scripture that we have, is offering a subtle cultural critique of how relationships were normally done and giving the church a different ethic around how they were, relate, they were to relate to one another in their posture, humility, love, sympathy, compassion, like-mindedness, and in their actions towards one another, doing good and seeking peace. 
and difference is often viewed with an eye of suspicion. But that should be nothing new. They are, they were addressed as exiles and foreigners. So being different should be nothing new to them. <clears throat> Let me give some examples. Um, as Andrew said, I'm a minister with InterVarsity. And so in essence, I'm a missionary. And uh, like most missionaries, uh, I raise money to support uh, that, that mission. And there's one particular year, I was in like a really, really, really big deficit. My wife was actually uh, within our varsity at the time. She no longer is. Uh, and we were in a very, very large deficit. Um, and it got my supervisor pretty concerned. Um, Colin is my supervisor. He, he, he knows people here and uh, stuff. Um, he was my supervisor. Actually, he's still my supervisor, actually. Um, we're still trying to figure out what that means after 15 years. Um, but he, is, he was my supervisor. Uh, and at the time, uh, he was really concerned about the deficit, like he should be, like he should have been. So what he did is he asked my coworkers, I was a part of a fairly large team uh, at the time, and he asked my coworkers to help erase um, that deficit. And my coworkers responded. Now, mind you, these are people who by themselves raise funds as well. But these coworkers opened up their own pockets and they opened up their networks to help eliminate that deficit. And through their efforts and a lot of hard work on my part and the generosity of people around us, that deficit was erased. That was different. That was a different example of community doing good and seeking peace in how they thought about their resources. And I was the benefactor of that. Within the church, that shouldn't be an unusual story. That should be our normal. Uh, this past year, one of the staff, now I'm a supervisor, um, kind of like what Colin used to be to me. Uh, and I'm a supervisor now, <clears throat> and one of my staff was in some financial trouble. trouble. And I lent her $1,000. Now, we're not rich people, but $1,000 is not terribly hard for us either. And I told um, this staff worker because she was committed to paying me back. And I told her, look, if other bills get in the way, I want this to be the first bill that you don't pay. And I'm okay with that. Um, now, in most working environments, it's probably unusual for your boss to give you money like that. Uh, but it should be appropriate in our world. Because before I am her boss, I am her brother. I am her brother in Christ, and she is my sister. Um, subsequently, I've given that staff two separate raises, so she's actually in a very better financial place now. Um, so I told this to my wife. I said, hey, I, I let so-and-so borrow $1,000. And then I found out from my wife, she'd actually lend out a few thousand dollars too to like other people that we were connected with. And that will, it was a surprise to me. And that will tell you who does the finances like in our home. Uh, my, my gracious wife, so grateful for that. <clears throat> um, but it's also an indication of how the community of faith should think about resources. More importantly, how we think about doing good and seeking peace for those who are part of our community. And that should make those that are outside of our community pause and wonder about how we relate to one another. Uh, lastly in this section, I love uh, the last line that Peter um, cites. He's citing uh, Psalm 34, if you want to look it up later. But it reads, 
For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. And the first time I read this, I had to pause and I had to ask myself, did that just say what I think it said? Righteous is a relational term. It describes right relationships between God, that we have with God, and that we have with those that are around us. And Peter elevates how we relate to one another to having an impact on the efficacy of our prayer life. Who God sees and who God hears. And after reading this passage, after studying and reflecting on this passage and doing an inventory of the relationships in my life, I had to commit myself to having a conversation with someone in my life. Because I, like probably all of us, I want God to be attentive to my prayers. And there's a conversation that I need to have. Peter calls us as exiles and foreigners that we should relate to one another differently as people who are kin to one another within the family of God. As I mentioned, Peter gives us instructions on how we should relate to one another, and that should look different um, than uh, how our environment generally relates to one another. And then a section, in the second section of the scripture that we're going to look at this morning, uh, I think Peter is offering a forewarning. I suspect Peter can see down the road. He can see down the road, and he can see that suffering is coming. In the previous section of scripture, I indicated uh, because of the relational ethic that Peter was establishing within the church and the subtle critique that is offered, the church was viewed with suspicion. Now, in this next section, uh, the church um, and how it relates to the outside world could be viewed as subversive. Before, it could be viewed with suspicion. But now, I think Peter is realizing that the church could also be viewed as subversive. And Peter offers a warning in how to navigate the, um, the coming suffering. Let us read. <clears throat> Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But if your heart revere Christ as Lord, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. <clears throat> but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against you, against your good behavior in Christ, may be ashamed of their slander. But it is better, for it is better, if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. <clears throat> In this scripture, I would like to offer that there are other individuals that have now entered into the equation that Peter is referring to. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer, do not fear their threats. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks, those who speak maliciously against. In these words, there is a tone of hostility. And there is a tone 
of inquisition. And I think it's safe to say that this isn't coming from within the church because Peter, Peter literally just gave instructions on how the church is to relate to one another, and it's not like this. So this is coming from without the church, outside of the church. And Peter is looking down the road, and he's trying to prepare the church for the potential uh, of suffering and persecution. The church was already acting countercultural in terms of how they were relating to one another, but they were also countercultural in the ways that they worshipped. Now, back in the day, there were many gods. There were many gods that could have been worshipped. And a person more than likely would have worshipped multiple gods according to their family, their village, their vocation, uh, maybe the god of their patron whom they owned allegiance to, um, and Caesar. That was all part of the polytheistic worship um, culture that existed back then. Uh, you were expected to offer worship to all of these various gods. Now, Jewish people had long been exempt. They had long been exempt from these forms of polytheistic worship uh, because it was known and accepted that Jewish people worshipped a different God. They, 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 they had a monotheistic faith, um, so they didn't have to participate, and that was understood. But this is a new group that is forming. This is a new way of Christian living. And they were also not participating in the various forms of polytheistic worship. Now, that might not sound like a big deal to us now, but how it was perceived back in the day was like this group choosing not to participate in an expected um, form of civic life to draw a contemporary parallel. It would have been perceived very similarly to how some perceived, some, not all, but how some perceived Colin Kaepernick kneeling during the national anthem. Now, Colin Kaepernick said very clearly he was kneeling during the national anthem to protest how black bodies were being victimized in our nation. But some perceived that action as unpatriotic, as un-American, as somehow not supporting our troops. That's how some of that was characterized. He was not participating in a recognized expression of our civic life together, standing during the national anthem. For the early church to not participate in the various forms of polytheistic worship was also perceived as not participating in a recognized expression of civic life. You were expected to offer sacrifice and worship to the god or goddess that protected your village or your city. You were expected to offer worship um, to the god or the deity of the harvest, to the deity of the ocean for your fish. Um, you were expected to offer worship and sacrifice to the god, whatever god your patron chose, and you were definitely expected to offer sacrifice and worship to Caesar, the god emperor. At the time of the early church, there was a much stronger uh, 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 spiritual worldview. Everything 
that happened. Everything that happened in the physical realm was the result of something happening in the spiritual realm. We don't think like that today because we're much more scientific in our thinking. But back in the day, if something happened in the physical realm, it was a result of something happening in the spiritual realm. So if various deities were not being worshipped enough, if various deities and gods were not being offered enough sacrifice, it left people, it left cities, it left harvests, etc., etc., vulnerable to all kinds of calamities that was very easy to blame the Christians for because the Christians were not participating. They were not participating in that polytheistic worship. They were not offering sacrifices. They were not offering their worship to those various gods. And this group of people who were already seen as suspicious with an eye of suspicion because of how they chose to worship could now be easily seen as subversive. They were not participating in an expected form of civic life. And in that spiritual worldview that dominated, that affected more than just them. And for the Christians, that was a good choice. They were making a good choice. It was appropriate worship. They had come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and he was the only one who occupied their worship and their sacrifice. They were doing good, and they were eager to do right. So this community should not be surprised that the expressions of their faith elicits perceived subversion, and as a result of that perceived subversion, potential persecution. And when that comes, Peter reminded the community to be gentle, to be respectful, to keep a clear conscience. Remember, he is addressing these people, this community, as exiles and foreigners. And for the early church, as it is today, our expressions of community and our various expressions of worship should produce a sense of otherness, of dislocation, and at times, persecution. That is right, and that is appropriate. The early church as it is now, we are always to be a foil. We are always to be a contrast to the environment around us. I don't mean that in an antagonistic way either. The church has for far too long been antagonistic toward the culture around it. We are to be gentle, we are to be respectful, but we are to offer a contrast. Let me share some examples. Recently, I was having a conversation with a parent at our kids' school. Um, and the, it, it was a, a conversation moved towards immigration. And I think it, it was around, it was post-election time. And as we all know, um, the candidate who would become our president, there was a lot of anti-immigration rhetoric that was in our national discourse. And during that process, as a result of that, it continues to be now, a lot of immigrants in our country, regardless of their status, feel under threat. And partially in response to this, my wife, who had just prior to this season been given stewardship of a home, which is no small thing for where we live, 
there was a couple that just loved and believed in my wife, and they said, here's a home. Do what you want. Do what you think is best. So partially in response to this rhetoric that was in our national discourse, my wife turned that home into a community center and a transitional home for recent refugees from Latin America. Now, many immigrants who come to our nation, particularly those who come to us from Latin America, they are our brothers and our sisters. A vast majority of these people, they have been baptized into the church. Now, they may be a part of a different faith tradition, but they are our brothers and sisters, nonetheless. And my wife takes very seriously this notion of family. She would have fit really, really well in the early church that Peter is prescribing and its expanding notion of kinship. If you are curious, you can ask my wife about it later. It is a wonderful endeavor. But I was sharing that story with a parent, and it, re it really made that parent scratch their head because instead of choosing to maximize profit, and, and my wife could have done that. This couple said, you can do whatever you want. Instead of choosing to maximize profit, my wife chose to provide shelter and my wife chose to provide refuge for our brothers and sisters who were literally, literally exiles and foreigners. And they are still family. Our expressions of community with one another should make the community around us stop and wonder. <clears throat> In another example, I have a friend in terms of how we navigate people who are not a part of our community. I have a friend, um, and he works, uh, he's an engineer, and he works, he's worked over the last number of years, many years, uh, at a couple of different engineering firms. And engineering firms are, are, are project-based kind of work environments, so there can be busy seasons. Um, but in this particular work environment, it just felt like it was busy season after busy season after busy season for my friend. Well, it came to a point where my friend had to say no to his demanding work schedule because it was too costly for his life, with his family, with his church, for his health. There were other things that were important to him. And he was butting up against this culture in his workplace that work was the most important thing. And he had to communicate to his supervisor that he didn't want to be a part of that work environment. That he needed to set it up um, more firm boundaries in his life. So he communicate, communicated that with his supervisor and it did not come without cost. It did not come without questioning. But because of my friend's commitment to his faith and to his family, he made another choice. He made another choice that was contrary to the expected norm of his workplace. Church, Peter invites us as exiles and foreigners to experience otherness and dislocation in how we treat one another and how we interact 
with those individuals outside of these walls. We need to recognize that at times, our expressions will lead to questioning, and at times, our expressions will lead to persecution. And that's okay. Because we are simply following the example that Jesus set out for us in the cross. I'm going to pray for us, and I think the worship team is going to come back up here. I think the prayer ministry is going to be offered in the back. If I've said something that's made you think, that's made you pause, I'd like to offer a few ways to reflect on the words I've shared. If there's a relationship that is in your life that is not right at the moment, and you know it's not right, I want to encourage you, for the sake of your prayer life and your ability to connect with God, seek reconciliation in that relationship. If a conversation is warranted, I want to commend you to having that conversation. If you found yourself in the midst um, of wondering how we should relate to one another as the church and how you think about your time, how you think about your resources, how we are family to one another in this church, but not just this church, our brothers and sisters globally around the church. If you need to think and rethink how you navigate that, I encourage you to do that. If you have been expressing forms of worship where you have been questioned, where you have been, you feel persecuted because of your Christian convictions, I want to commend you to gentleness and respect in that process and to press into the character of Jesus who, are, who was our example of the suffering servant. Let me pray for us.